Welcome to the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast, and we're delighted that you're joining us. Um, for those of you who haven't tuned in before, the Refashioning the Renaissance project is an ERC-funded investigation into the clothes, the fashions of the Renaissance period, um, roughly between 1550 and 1650. Um, and we're particularly interested in uh, what artisans were wearing, what people were wearing every day on the street. And this year, we've been exploring the, the makers and the methods that people were using to create fashionable styles in that period. My name is Sophie Pittman. I'm one of the postdocs on the project. And I'm here today with uh, the principal investigator of the project, Paula Hoti Eriksson. And Together, we are here to talk with um, somebody we've been collaborating with, Dr. Elizabeth Curry, who's based at the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Royal College of Art, where she works on the History of Design program. And she's a specialist on early modern Italy. Um, and we've been delighted to work with her a bit. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So welcome, um, Elizabeth. And to open up discussion, um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the work that you've done on tailors. Yeah, thank you. So I've worked a little bit on tailors in Florence in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and I was particularly interested in their making processes um, and their day-to-day -day working activities. And that was something that I couldn't really find in guild records. So I went to household account books and I was also very lucky to come across various um, receipts from tailors for clothing that they'd made, which gave me much more insight into what they were getting paid for, what were the kind of key activities of their trade. So could you briefly describe what, what a receipt might list on it? What information can you get from yes. one of those sources? So you would get the date that a garment was commissioned and you would probably discover that it was completely and paid for a lot long, uh, longer after that. Um, you would also know about the various items that went into making up the garment. Um, and tailors at this time weren't supplying the main fabric of a garment. That was still something that the customer brought um, with them. But um, in the 16th century, tailors were buying things like threads. So there might be payments also for... Um, linings, smaller kind of haberdashery, um, and they would also mainly be charging for making up, but I was interested to see that some tailors were charging for design, their design skills, which it isn't quite clear from the receipts what that comprises, but it, to me that was a very interesting component of their activities. And when you were doing this research on, on tailors, what kinds of questions were you um, asking more broadly about, about their role? In, in yeah, so I was interested life? in what was the most expensive kind of garment that you could buy, and also thinking about the amount of time that it took to make a garment. I was interested, particularly because I was looking at it also from the consumer angle, I was interested to see the kind of relationships that tailors established with their customers. So all the families that I looked at, I was looking at a handful of Florentine members, families, members of the nobility in Florence, and they all um, used the same tailors over a long period of time. Um, and they also used people ad hoc. So there was a sense that these relationships were built up over time, but they would also maybe shop around in a sense and go to different craftsmen for particular things. So Elizabeth, um, you uh, joined us in a doublet making course at the London School of Historic Dress a while ago. Um, and the aim of this workshop was to spend six days at the school 
um, and actually learn how a doublet was tailored in the early modern period. And um, so we sat there sewing and, uh, and drafting the pattern yeah. <laughs> for, for uh, the doublet over these six days. Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you experienced this course and, and what did this course, this actual making of the doublet, what did it add to, to your work on yes. tailoring? Yes, yeah, so as I said, I was really interested in thinking about making uh, aspects of making already. Um, and I make things at home on a sewing machine. So I have really not done much hand stitching. So it was a revelation in lots of different ways. I think we've all tried to sew things at different points in our lives, maybe at school, maybe we've mended clothes. Um, and so we're used perhaps to trying to make very neat uniform stitches and we know the kind of skill that's involved in that. I think one thing that was particularly was more interesting than that to me were other types of stitching that we used. So, for example, the pad stitching that I think we put on the, was it around the shoulders um, of the doublet? Uh, and pad stitching is a way of stitching together different layers and it gives a more kind of sculptural effect. So that was something that I'd read about, but I think unless you try doing it yourself, you don't really get a sense of how it works. Um, so as you're stitching these kind of diagonal, these slanted stitches that look a little bit like crow's feet when you've done them well, um, you're also moulding the layers of fabric with your hand and you're making something that, you know, is very three-dimensional. And so that kind of, that was a real eye-opener, I think, for me, although I knew about it, trying to do it made me think more about the skill that was involved and also it made me reconsider perhaps comments about tailors and the way that they could correct aspects of the body or compensate maybe for the wearer's faults. I think we we definitely find that in Italy. There are um, uh, commentators who say, you know, a tailor can size up the customer and they can see if they're stooping a bit to the right. So they have to even that out in their doublet if they're a really good tailor. And I think using these kind of sculpting, tailoring techniques is a, was a way of doing that that made me think about it in a different way. Was there something surprising about this process for you? Well, I think that probably was the most surprising thing. In a sense, it really reinforced small aspects that I picked up in sources and made me think about them with greater clarity. So I was really struck by the fabric that we were working with. So the doublet was in, in velvet, silk velvet, that was really appealing and very tactile. And I've often thought about the fact that tailors were working with fabrics that they couldn't afford themselves, that they wouldn't have worn themselves. And because our silk was so very superior, that we, then I did feel... A bit, very very strongly the sense that I, I shouldn't spoil it I shouldn't damage it so it gave me a sense of kind of trepidation which clearly if you have experience and and years of kind of tailoring behind you you might feel that less but I felt particularly it was interesting when we tried stamping the velvet so I know in your project you're interested in thinking about different forms of decoration and, and decoration that maybe people further down the social scale might have uh, adopted in their clothing so we tried stamping a pattern onto the velvet in a way that would imitate patterned silks um and and I think when it was suggested that we did this I felt a certain sense of like no I don't, I don't want to spoil the fabric that I'm working with and I've come across records from the 16th century for example a particular one which was really interesting of a Milanese tailor who slashed a fabric on top of another piece underneath by mistake so he spoiled the fabric underneath and then had to try and recuperate it or um pay a fine 
for damaging fabric. So I think that sense of of the value of the materials that we were working with was something very interesting. And so the stamping was, we did it with a fork, didn't we? So we <laughs> heated up the tines of the fork and then pushed it into the pile of the velvet. And it was interesting because it was a very fine line between making a good pattern and, and burning the velvet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, as some of us know, discovered to our cost. But I, and I managed not to burn the velvet, but I've noticed three months later that the pile of the fabric has has. Come Kind of moved has sprung back into shape and the pattern that I'd created during the workshop is much less evident and I've looked subsequently at some uh, stamped silks and I think that um, velvets and I think you really would have to apply quite a lot of heat and, mm. and push for quite a lot of time so that was a, it's something that I learned about technique that I didn't know that I hadn't thought about before. I wonder how much of um, the process that we followed contributed to that sort of um emotional response because we started mm. our, our six-day course by um, drafting a pattern and then trying to economically lay out the, the pieces of the, the shapes that would go into our doublet shape um, so that we could use the minimum amount of velvet. And so I think even perhaps just the way that we started our process, which is as far as we can tell the way that tailors in the 16th century would have also begun the process of making contributes to our, our sense of the kind of precious nature of these materials and and maybe if we'd just been handed this velvet and said there's as much as you need cut away we might have had a very different experience of it yes definitely so the the challenge of trying to piece together small kind of cutoffs of of the velvet in order to maximize the use of it and kind of in a sense do some zero waste cutting was definitely um did contribute to that sense of it being very precious um and we did think a lot about where we would do the piecing and whether we should put it in places that were less visible or not and i wonder if that's maybe a modern preconception of trying to hide um, these kind of small you know it's almost kind of patchwork effect isn't it and and so that's something that we no longer do but I've noticed piecing say on ecclesiastical textiles on chasubles and they're really quite obvious and I don't I don't know whether in the 16th century there was the kind of dislike of piecing maybe that we have now. Yeah I wonder if perhaps there's a certain pride in it um, as well that look you know this is this is a well-made garment because the tailor has had the geometrical know-how to yes, to use the fabric economically. Point. Yeah, and certainly, you know, I'm sure you have seen this too in objects at the V&A collection and elsewhere. Once you start looking for piecing, yes. um, suddenly it appears to you, and, and they they don't seem to mind if the pattern doesn't match perfectly or if exactly if the nap is in a different direction. So it's certainly something that once you start looking for it, it seems to be done yes. across the social spectrum, not just at the mid or lower level. Yes, and um, I mean coming back to Paula, your comment about things that surprised me about it I suppose the sheer physicality of it surprised me so we were doing a half scale doublet and it was quite tricky especially because the velvet was quite thick um, and so there were points that were very 
difficult to sew, particularly, I mean, something that's known to be a challenge for the, for a, a tailor is that setting the sleeve and putting that into the shoulder uh, with the shoulder wing. So essentially we were, how, how many layers of fabric were we going through? About three layers of velvet plus linings. And that was very difficult to sew. And I remember waxing the thread and trying to make it do anything that would help it um, kind of ease it a bit more. And I tried using a thimble. I don't know if any of us were using thimbles. I remember being shown that there was a particular technique in, in wearing the thimble and using, you know, how to push the, the needle through with the thimble. And I knew that was something that I wouldn't be able to master within two days. So I abandoned that. But um, definitely at the end of the day, I had very kind of sore fingers, which is probably to do with not, you know, it not being something that I do on a daily basis. But I was interested to, to find that out. Yeah. Hmm. Luckily, we were not working on leather. Yes, that exactly. Would have been a- an extra challenge. Yes. <laughs> but I think it helps you um, sympathise um, and think more about the tailor's body and artisans' bodies more generally, what kind of physical feats that they had to go through and also the way that their bodies were developed in response to, to these methods. I mean, we weren't being totally true to the practices we know that tailors had to go through. Like, we didn't sit on the table in a cross-legged position and we weren't just working by candlelight. So yes. there were certain things that we compromised on. Although when you look at engravings or representations of workshops, you also see them placed right in the window, don't you? We did that, there, there was a lot of wind, There was a lot of daylight, but yes, we weren't right up against the <laughs> natural source, yes. So we actually have a fourth guest in the room with us, which is the miniature doublet that um, that you made, um, yes. Elizabeth. Yes. So I've I've brought it in with me, and it's interesting to look at it again and and see the kind of different layers. And you were saying, Paula, that you've taken yours with you to various different events. Yes. Yes. So I think it's very um, uh, striking to see it, to be able to touch it, you know, obviously, and, and handle it in a way that you wouldn't be able to do with anything in, the, in a museum store. Um, and we decided to leave the, the lining open at one side of the doublet um, at the back of it. And I'm glad that we did that because we can still see all the parts that would be hidden. So the various layers, so layers of wool with pad stitching, but we can't see, for example, how we made the collar. And I, I particularly thought that was interesting. So we used bents in the collar and pad stitched around them. So it's very upright uh, and very, very sturdy. And we also made a belly piece. Um, so it's a small triangular stiffener at the front um, at the stomach. And I can't remember how, how many layers that was. Was it four? Yeah, the wool and various kind of a stiffened linen. Um, yeah, linen that had been painted with rabbit skin glue, I think, to give it more. Yes, exactly. As well. And then and then we stitched in our equivalent of baleen, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Was that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah some uh, some plastic imitation <laughs> imitation whalebone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was very interesting because all these things, although now there are obviously publications that do a brilliant job of showing with X-rays the different uh, kind of hidden layers of garments like this it's very much a different thing to have an understanding and go through the processes of making them and and stitching them into place. And I suppose it's interesting as well because the customer at the time wouldn't have seen 
some of these things and maybe wouldn't have had a clear understanding of, you know, wouldn't have known why the collar was so stiff or how padding was made. Um, obviously, we don't know how much kind of dialogue there was between a customer and a tailor. But I think that the sort of hidden sense of it goes into, feeds into ideas about tailors being kind of um, somehow having a kind of magical touch. So I've been looking at discussions of the tailoring craft, say, in Leonardo Fioravanti's Specchio di Scienza Universale um, that was published in Venice in 1572. And he has that interesting tension between talking down the tailor's art and saying that tailors only learn from their customers, but at the same time saying that you look at their kind of science and their craft with wonder. So there is a kind of magical sense, you know, how does how does this work? And I think if we hadn't seen all the different stages and, and gone through them ourselves in quite a painstaking way, um, uh, that has now put us in a different kind of position, really, to understand it. Mm. What do you think was the most challenging part for you um, in making this tablet? Definitely putting in the sleeve, <laughs> and that's um, which was amusing because I've often talked about tailors leading fashionable change. So I've always wanted to move away from the narrative that it's um, that it was figures like Isabella Desta who had an idea for a particular kind of head ornament, and, and then everyone followed her. And I've often I've often said, well, obviously lots of these things are to do with construction, to do with making, and that if you're if you weren't a maker, you wouldn't be able to think of them. Um, and so I've often talked maybe about sleeves being being particularly challenging and how all these different forms of decoration come emerge around the sleeve so you get shoulder puffs and shoulder rolls and we put on a shoulder wing and I was really glad that we had a shoulder wing because if there wasn't a shoulder wing it would definitely be a lot messier <laughs> and you would see my not very accomplished seam underneath so it was nice to do that after having talked about that with students quite a lot and, and talking about you know for example we we had the doublet has tabs um Uh, along the bottom which would cover the strip with the eyelet holes that the breeches would be tied into and the tabs again it's another way of covering a join um, again hiding things in a kind of almost magical um, tailoring way so yeah that was something that I was uh, I enjoyed doing very much. Yeah, I think it's very useful to, to have this kind of physical object with you. Um, and I have certainly like discovered that when I when I give a talk to the general public or to academic audiences and, and in teaching that it's very easy or it's much easier to communicate some ideas and, and, and engage people with your research when, when you can actually show something that they can touch and, and look. So um, Elizabeth, do you think that now that you have this physical doublet here, do you think you can use it in your teaching or, or do you think this will serve you and your work yeah, so in some I've way. Definitely, um, I, I teach a, uh, an option on early modern material histories, um, which has a component that centers on making in different ways. And we've done, say, this term, we did some lino cuts after we'd looked at various woodcut engravings with the students in the at the VNA. Um, and we've also done pricking and pouncing. So we've been thinking about design transfer. And so I haven't actually done, we did a little embroidery after that, but I haven't actually done any garment making or clothes making. But this is definitely something that I can use to frame a discussion about why it might be useful to incorporate um, recreating processes or making processes within one's work as a historian. So it definitely is a kind of springboard for questions and ideas about what one might learn for it from it. Well, that leads 
perfectly onto my sort of final question, um, which is, what did we learn um, from our six very long and laborious, exhausting um, and inspiring days at the School of Historical Dress making this doublet? What, what are our takeaways? Well, I think for me, the, the tension between the kind of extreme physical manual labour involved, the time that it takes to learn different skills, the idea of specialisation as well in the workshop. So... I found it very, very hard. I fell at the buttonhole hurdle. <laughs> After trying to stitch a buttonhole about five times, I gave up as I had ruined the pile on the velvet and my silk was fraying. So that made me think a lot about how people had different roles in the workshop, which is something that I'd found in, in accounts beforehand, so in um, kind of primary source documents. And so it was interesting to explore that physically. Um, I also think I take away this idea about the kind of magic of tailoring and the fact that so much of it is hidden and that we can't see it. And perhaps that the customer at the time in the 16th and 17th centuries didn't know exactly what went into making a garment. Um, So I think those are two key things. And then our sense, our attitude towards the textiles and and issues around piecing and the value of textiles in the period. And do you think now when you maybe return to your receipts that you were mentioning um, at the beginning or when you look at these other sources on, on tailoring, do you think now you have different questions or different um, different ideas when you approach these sources, having having had a had a go yourself? Yes, yeah, so I definitely see them with a different insight. So just small things, for example, customers buying secondhand velvets to use for embroidery. So that was quite customary. You would buy a velvet that where the pearl was already flattened and had been worked to some extent because it's very hard to embroider on velvet. So that's something that I understand with a kind of new with an, in a new light now. Um, and I definitely have gone back to um, these writings on tailors and kind of the cultural status and social status of tailors. And I think I can look at those with much more clearly directed questions and have a better sense of the kind of dual nature of tailoring and and why people thought about them in in a certain way so why people wondered at their craft but also were perhaps very suspicious of it so elizabeth we have been talking about making and tailoring Um, how much did it cost in the early modern period in 16th and 17th century to have a doublet tailored by a tailor yes so if you're going to a tailor that suggests already a kind of level of social status um, because lots of people clearly had their clothes made at home it's quite hard to answer how much uh, the question how much a tailor would have earned because it varied so much Um, it would depend on what the fabric was made of and how much work went into uh, making it up how much kind of decoration was on it particularly whether it was lined so we're lucky to have a price list that was issued by the guild in Florence in 1534 that tells us um, the prices for longer gowns female gowns those are the most expensive garments Um, and they would be more expensive if they were made of say a brocaded silk or a velvet Um, but this I'm talking here about the workmanship that went into making them up they would also be much more expensive if they were lined understandably Um, but even so a tailor was earning a fraction of the cost the full cost of the garment 
So in, in some of the records that I've looked at, an average price for a doublet might be around six lira in the last quarter of the 16th century. And going into the 17th century, I've found prices that are much higher than that. And I think an important factor in increasing the wages that tailors earned was this concept of disegnatura, because I see a split between prices for fatura making up and disegnatura, and that could add another 10% on to the tailor's um, earnings. And that doesn't include the fabric, it's just for the making? No, that doesn't include the fabric, although the tailors might be charging small amounts for some basic linings and silk threads. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth and Paula, for a really stimulating conversation about tailoring. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for allowing me to take part in the workshop um, and also learn more about your project. It's been really fascinating. It's been giving me lots of food for thought over the last couple of months and it's something that I know I'll use a lot going forward in my teaching and in my research. Yeah, and thank you for you, Elizabeth, for joining our, our Dublet workshop. And, and I think the discussions that we had over these six days of working and sewing together were very, very interesting. And, and just the, the possibility to reflect on this experience with you just made it very special for thank us. You. So if you would like to learn more about our Dublet workshop and the experiments we've been doing on the Refashioning the Renaissance project, you can visit our website, refashioningrenaissance.eu, or you can follow us on Twitter at re underscore fashioning. And if you'd like to learn more about Elizabeth's work, you can check out her book, Fashion and Masculinity in Renaissance Florence, that came out with Bloomsbury in 2016, and also follow her on Twitter at Lizzie Curry. Thanks very much, and uh, we hope that you can join us next time for the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast.